to me and let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are the rock of your people. You are our fortress. You are our deliverance. As the psalmist said, you are our God in whom we take refuge. You are our shield and you are the horn of our salvation and you are our stronghold. Lord, my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Lord, we thank you that you are our rock, that, 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 that place of safety, that place of security, that strong and sure foundation. Lord, the foundations of this world are sifting sand. Lord, when we stand upon Christ, the solid rock, we would never be moved. We would never be shaken by the winds and the waves and the storms of this world and of this life. And Lord, you're also our fortress. You're our place of, of safety and, and protection. Lord, you hide us in the shadow of your wings. And Lord, we thank you for that, that you hide us and that you protect us. And Lord, this morning, I just want to pray to go before you and ask you, Lord. We, we behold you, Lord, because you made the, the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Jeremiah 32 and 17 says, Our Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too difficult for you. Lord, you also said in Jeremiah 32 that you are the Lord, you are the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for you? And Lord, the answer is no. Lord, in this life, we can face difficulties and trials. They may not be like the prophet Jeremiah. But Lord, they're very real. And sometimes they can seem insurmountable to us. And in fact, Lord, sometimes they seem like we can't overcome them or endure them. But Lord, we must be reminded that your hand is not shortened. It is not shortened at all. That what was true of your power in Jeremiah's time, when you told Jeremiah nothing is too difficult for you, Lord, it is certainly true today. That whatever present hardships may press upon us, or whatever burdens, Lord, may be weighing us down. That we can look up to you, Lord, with confident faith and say, Lord, there is nothing too hard for you. Lord, many times in our trials, we can make our, our trials bigger than our God. But Lord, give us the mind to make our God big and our trials small rather than making our trials big and our God small. Lord, there's such peace that comes with an assurance that there's nothing too hard for you. Lord, there's such peace that comes with that. Lord, no matter what comes our way, no matter how cruel or how bitter or how hopeless it may seem, it is just nothing to you. Lord, it doesn't move you at all. It doesn't affect you at all, Lord. Lord, you're able to deliver us as easy as, you, as we can call upon your name for support and help. Think about all the hard things that we have in our life. Many of us have difficult duties, difficult jobs. We have pains in our bodies. We have struggles. We have bitter disappointments. We endure harsh words. Lord, we, we have sinful thoughts. We have a a hard heart. We have to deal with the hard hearts in others. Lord, we should gather all these things together and bring them before your throne. Bring our mountain of afflictions before the cross of Christ. And Lord, you would tell us, is there anything too hard for you? Lord, when our hearts are weary of life's cares and crosses, 
without courage fails because of a sense of helplessness. And Lord, we can cry out in our heart, Lord, everything seems to be against us. Lord, what a great support and a stronghold in the fact that you have all power in heaven and on earth in your hands. Lord, that is what we must always resort to knowing. That be that as it may, whatever comes our way, that all power on heaven and earth is in your hands. There's nothing too mighty for you to manage. There's nothing too insignificant to escape your notice. Well, there are no small things in our life that you don't tend to. Lord, may we remember your outstretched arm in the creation of the heaven and earth when we endure our trials. Lord, may we never give up in despair while we have such a great God to trust in. Lord, when we have the great sorrows or difficulties in our way, the sorrows or difficulties of of sickness, of illness, of disease, of life's trials. May we not be cast down by the darkness or the shadow of it, Lord. Lord, you can either make a way for us through it, or you can guide us around it, or you can carry us right over it. There's nothing too hard for you. Lord, may we expect you to make the crooked things straight and to bring the high things low. Lord, may we gather humbly at your feet in prayer and work wondrously, and we will see the salvation of the Lord. Lord, may may we be encouraged with this this morning. Lord, we continue to pray in our church for uh, those of us who are enduring these trials, and may this May this prayer be an encouragement to them that nothing is too hard for you, that all power in heaven and earth is in your hand. Lord, we lift up our brother Darrell as he continues to deal with his legs and his feet, the pains there. Our brother Harvey as he continues to uh, recover from his uh, affliction and recovering his balance. Lord, we also uh, pray for uh, the Lord to continue to be with her and her legs. Pain that she may feel also, Lord. Lord, we pray for the Dunn family. You know the need there. And for family having two surgeries tomorrow, Lord. This may be the doctors and be with them as they go through this surgery. Lord, we continue to pray for our, our church that... You be with us and that we continue to uh, be gospel people, be about your business. May we continue to shepherd each other and love one another. May we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we continue, Lord, to practice the um, ordinary means of grace, scripture reading and praying, meditating on scripture, church attendance, observing the sacraments, Lord, just fellowshipping with the saints, that we continue to do that, which are means of way in which we grow. May we continue, Lord, to strive for a, a life that is pleasing to you. And Lord, we pray this morning also for our school-age children. There are many in here this morning. Some have started already in the county, and some start this week. We have some from kindergarten all the way up to college. We Pray for RJ and, and uh, Chandler. RJ is entering his last year of school, and Chandler is beginning his first year of school up at uh, Alabama A&M. Lord, that you be with them both this week as they get ready to go back to school. That you may have your way in their life, Lord. Lord, we pray for our youngest school children, those in elementary school this morning. Kindergarten all the way up to sixth grade. Even those babies, Lord, as they go to school and as they learn, that you protect their minds from uh, evil influences. 
that you give them even at their young age, Lord, a, a discerning mind to, to, to know as much as they can uh, good from evil. That you may bless their parents, that the, the parents are active in their lives and active in knowing what is being taught to their children, knowing what's being taught in the schools and being an active participant in their child's education so that they will not be caught unaware with what's being taught in our schools. Give the parents wisdom to work with the teachers and the administrators to make sure that their child's educational needs are met. We pray for our high schoolers, our ninth graders, our, our 12th graders, Lord, you, our 11th graders, Lord, that you be with them. That they're in high school, they're matriculating through school, Lord, that you be with them whether they're doing school online or in person, Lord. You may bless them to excel academically, to pursue academic excellence, and also, Lord, to be careful who they choose as, as friends and who they choose to let influence them. That they not be influenced by the, the ways of this world and the trends of this culture, but be influenced by godly grandparents and godly parents and godly friends. And be influenced by your word and what's true and what is right, what is righteous, what is what is good, what is virtuous, what, what brings you glory. And Lord, protect them from evil influences, protect them from harm. Protect them in their educational pursuits. The content in which they are taught also. And Lord, we pray for our uh, school employees, uh, our friend and Miss Deborah and Melissa. Be with them, Lord, as they work in the schools, work with children, work with teachers, working with parents, Lord, that you, you bless them as they go into this school environment. Persevere them and their uh, work at school, that they may be a good, positive influence, a gospel influence on those around them. That you protect them from evil, evil influence, evil influence of some teachers or some parents or, or even some administrators. Give them wisdom, give them gospel discernment. And as they deal with these children around, I'll take it Lord, give them patience. <laughs> As we deal with the children of our Lord, we just thank you for the witnesses that are here this morning to, to witness your work in all of us, Lord. And we pray that you continue to do your work in all of us. Do your saving work in those who need salvation. Do your sanctifying work in those who are yours. Lord, just bless our time in your word this morning. As we get ready to hear about what unity is. And the oneness that is with you and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and the oneness, the unity that we should have in the church, Lord, that we live this out. Lord, soften our hearts that we may receive your word. That those who are unsaved, may their hearts not be hardened, but be melted into repentance. Father, bless our time in your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Let us turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. We're in our second part of this, these first six verses. Walking in unity. And this morning we're focusing on verses four through six. Verses 4 through 6. Ephesians. And the Lord is so good. We love the word of God. We'll continue with this theme of unity here. I'm going to begin at the first verse again and then read through verse 6 for a good context. Paul begins by saying this. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord or for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing 
with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, when we read that passage, especially the verses we're focusing on this morning, there are two words that pop out with me. The first word is one. And the second one is all. One is singular and exclusive, and one is inclusive. This morning, we're talking about unity. And when Paul talks about one in this passage, he is speaking of unity, because unity means one. To be united together as one. And, you know, we talk, I talked last week about how the world is always speaking of people coming together. Everybody needs to just come together and just get along. The world talks a lot about unity. The world talks about a lot about being one. We see it all the time. But everybody just, everybody just needs to put their differences uh, aside and, and just come together as one. The world is always talking about coming together as one. And, and you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with asking people to come together as one. Nothing wrong with that. But the questions we have to ask is, what are we coming together around? What is the uniting factor in us coming together? Or who is the united factor coming uh, coming together? Who, who is the united factor? Who is the adhesive? You know, adhesive makes something adhere or stick to something. What 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 what's going to make this unity sticky? What's going to make it one? Everybody's oh, everybody just needs to, to get along and just love each other. Isn't that what we hear in the world a lot? But the world doesn't know what love is. You know, the world says love is love without even defining love. Oh, we just need to love one another. You know, maybe you've had songs about that. You know, John, uh, it was a John Lennon that sung this song, All We Need Is Love. You know, it was all that hippie song back in the 60s. All we need is love, love, love. Everybody just needs to come together. Everybody just needs to get together. All right, who are you uniting around is what matters. What are you uniting around that matters? So in this passage this morning, we see Paul is speaking of the unity in the body of believers. And who makes that unity happen? And verse 3 tells us, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So the unity in the body of believers occurs because one spirit dwells in all believers. Only one spirit dwells in believers. Only one. The Holy Spirit lives in all Christians. Talk about this last week. Every single Christian has the spirit of God living in him or her. He lives in all Christians and he gives the church her true oneness. Without the spirit, the body cannot exist. Christianity is not a club to join. It is not some mystical but unreal entity. But instead, true Christianity is a spiritual relationship. It is a mystical union with Christ as well as with other believers. And I talk about it all the time. If a Christian came over here from Bosnia or from Zimbabwe or from South Korea and came to worship with us, guess what? We will welcome them as being part of our family because 
guess what? They're united in Christ with us by grace through faith, by salvation. That's what makes us one. It's not because, you know, they're they're from South Korea, so we kind of treat them at a distance because they're not American. No, they are in a spiritual relationship with Christ just as much as we are. That's what makes the body of Christ different. I told y'all that, that the Christian community is the only true community because we're united around one single person. It is one single person who unites us, and that is the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So Paul here, as we get into these uh, seven whys of unity, why do we have unity? Why are we to be united? He begins it. We're going to go through each one of these seven. First, he says, I'm going to read them again in order. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So those are seven ones of unity that Paul gives. So first he says, we have one what? Body. One body. Now there's little place in the Bible for individualism. We live in a highly individualistic culture here in America. And if you sometimes talk about my body, my choice. You know, this is my body. I can do whatever I want to do with it or to it. You know, freedom is one of the concepts of this country that we praise the Lord for. But here in America, especially, we're a highly individualistic culture. That's good, but it's also bad when it comes to the church. Sometimes we can take that individualistic mentality into the body of Christ. And we look more for people doing for us more than they'll do it for others. We talked about that last week. We can be so individualistic that we don't think on other people. But Paul says there's one body. What is that body? This body is the church. The capital C church, the universal church. This is the universal church. So there's only one church. There's only one church. Christ's body is not divided. The body of Christ is not divided. There's no division in the true church. Now we do have false church, false churches, apostate Churches, pretend churches, pretend uh, pastors, false pastors, false ideologies, false theologies, but they are not part of the true church. They may have the word church in their name. They may meet in an edifice like we do every Lord's Day. They may have someone who calls himself a pastor or a bishop or an apostle or a chief apostle or whatever uh, standing in front of them. Spouting nonsense out of their mouth and deceiving people with their false doctrine, but that does not make them a church. There's one true church, there's one body, and that is the church in which Christ is the head. The body is the church, it is Christ's body. Paul said that in Ephesians 1 and 3, which is his body, the fortress of him who fears all. The church is the body of Christ. And this church comprises of Jewish and Gentile believers, as we talked about. It is a heavenly gathering. It is very heavenly. And it is centered around Christ, in whom now all believers participate. The body of Christ, by definition, is one. It's only one. By definition. Each congregation is a local manifestation of that heavenly entity of the church. 
We have different congregations, we have different denominations, but all of them are still part of the one church. All of them are still part of the one church. And that's how we must look at the body. So this one body is Christ. It is one body of Christ. It is only one church and always will be one church. Paul said here in Romans uh, 12 uh, verses 4 through 5 he says this about the body of Christ. Read this for you in Romans, Romans 12 verse 4 through 5. This is the same Paul. He says for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we Though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What does this mean? If you are in the body of Christ by grace and faith, if you are saved, we, you belong to other church members. All of us belong to each other as believers. All of us belong to each other. We, though many, as Paul says, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So all of us are one body in Christ because we belong to the church. If there is division in the church, it is not from God. 1 Corinthians 14 and 33 is God is not the author of confusion. Who's the author of confusion? The devil. If there's any disunity in the church, God's not the author of it at all. So he says in one body. Then he says in one spirit. There's only one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit unites all believers. He is the uniting force behind all believers. There's only one Holy Spirit. It's not two. Not one where you get a second blessing and all those different things. No, there's only one Spirit. The church is enlivened, is uh, energized by the Holy Spirit who enlivens all believers. The church gets her power from the Holy Spirit. This is all believers do. We get our power to live gospel-centered lives with the Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit does not contradict the Word of God. He is consistent and He is reliable. Without the Spirit, it is impossible to know God, it is impossible to come to Christ, and it is impossible to live the Christian life in unity without the Holy Spirit. You have many people, many unbelievers who try to live a quote, good life. They try to be good moral people. But eventually it's going to fall apart. Why? Because they don't have the spirit of God and they're not spirit filled. You cannot live as a Christian without the spirit of God. You cannot know God without the spirit. If you have the spirit of God, then you are his. But if you don't have the spirit, you do not belong to God. And it's impossible for you to know God. You can read the Bible. You can go to church. You can listen to good preaching. You can listen to Christian music that talk about God. But if you don't have the spirit of God in you, you would never know God. You cannot know God apart from the spirit of God. Because it is the Spirit of God who reveals God to you. That is one of the purposes of the office of the Holy Spirit. He reveals the truth of God to those who believe. So, this one Spirit brings unity. He does not contradict. Jesus said here in John, the fourth chapter, verses uh, 23 and 24. He says this to the woman at the well. 
It says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Not God is a spirit. Because a spirit means he's one of many spirits. No. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, since God is spirit, that means that God is not made of any type of physical matter. He does not have a material body. Okay? But when he says worship him, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? That means in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we worship God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And only believers have the power of the Spirit. So we worship God in spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who reveals truth to us. You can't worship God in spirit and truth if you don't have his spirit. If you're not one of his, you don't understand the truth. Because if you understood the truth, guess what? You will repent and turn to Christ and be saved. Because that is what? Truth. Jesus said his first public ministry words were repent and believe the gospel. Those are his very first words in his public ministry. Repent. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call was always to repent. That is the truth. If you don't have the spirit of God, you're not going to repent. You're going to think that you're okay. You're going to think that you can borrow time. You're going to think that everybody thinks I'm a good person. I don't, you know, I'm good. No. The Holy Spirit unites all believers together. Those who don't have the Holy Spirit are not gods. And because they're not gods, guess what? They're not part of the body. And because they're not part of the body, they can't what? They can't unite. Believers and unbelievers can't unite together. Because darkness and light can't fellowship together. It's impossible. They may say some things right sometimes, but they're still in darkness. They're in spiritual darkness. They may say some right things sometimes. They may say some right sayings, some things that are true. But if they don't have the spirit of God, guess what? They, they're not united with all of us as believers. So Paul says there's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then he says in the next verse, not the next verse, but the next one is just as you were called to the one hope. The one hope. Now, this word has several different meanings. But in this context, Paul is speaking of the consummation of the believer's faith. In other words, to, 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 to consummate means to bring to an end. So he's speaking of one hope. He's speaking of us experiencing the unity and the resurrection of Christ when he comes back to bring us home. The one hope that we have is what Jesus is coming back to do and call us home. That's the hope that the believer has. We have what, what kind of hope we have? We have one hope. The world has thousands of hopes. The world hopes in what? This world. The world hopes in material wealth and possessions. The world hopes in, in fame and accolades and likes and and, and, and shares and views. That's what the world has their hope in. The world has their hope in mutilating their bodies and killing their babies inside their womb. They, they, their hope is in 
the materialism of this world, the secular worldview, which lies to them. It tells them that, yes, you can have it all. People spend their whole lives scratching and clawing, trying to have it all, trying to fill that empty void inside of them. Why? Because they're living a hopeless existence because they have no hope beyond this world. We always say, for those who are in the world, this world is the best that it will get for them. This is the best that it gets for the unsaved. Go ahead and live it up. Eat, drink, and be merry, as the Epicurean said, for tomorrow we die. That's what the world says. Live it up, right? Have fun. Go out and get drunk. Go out and get high. Still empty. You're still hopeless. You don't have a certain assurance that when Christ comes back, that you're going to go back with him. That when you're dead and pushing up babies, that when the dead in Christ rise first, that you're not going to be one of the ones that's going to go up with them. People can say all, all the good stuff at the funeral. A crowd of tears that they want and put R.I.P. on the back of their cars and wear your face on t-shirts. All they want. But if you die without hope in Christ, it is nothing that they can do. But for believers, what unites us together? We have what? One hope that we are going to go back with Christ. That is what unites us as believers. We know that this world is not it. That this world is going to be done away with. It's going to burn up. And all this stuff that we worked to attain is going to be gone. Someone else is going to get it and they're going to squander it. What unites us as believers? We know that, guess what? We're all going to see each other again. That we're going to be with our Savior. And we won't have to deal with sin anymore. That we're going to have our final victory over sin. John MacArthur says the greatest thing about heaven is the absence of sin. Because sin has marred all of creation. But what hope do we have that no one else has? That Christ is coming back. We don't know when, but we know that it's coming. Either we're going to be alive when he comes, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, and we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. Or as Paul said to the Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will rise first. And our bodies are going to go join our spirits in heaven. We're going to take on glorified bodies. Whatever sin has done to our bodies, what hope do we have? When we get to heaven, we won't have that limp anymore. We won't have that pain in our legs and our and our feet. We won't have to worry about diabetes and arthritis and, and, and all of these other things that sin, the effects of sin, the effects of the fall have done to our bodies and to our minds. And sometimes we did things to our bodies. But guess what? None of that will be present. That's the hope that unites us as believers. That we have a place of what prepared for us. It's already made. Christ is not up there doing renovations, getting it ready for us. No, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be there also. That is our hope. That's the hope of our calling as believers. And that is one thing that should unite us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Then he says, one Lord, one Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is the Old Testament name for Yahweh. There's only one way to be right with God, and that is faith in Christ. There's only one Lord. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. There's no other name given unto heaven among men 
whereby we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to God. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only one who can save your soul. He is the only one who purchased your salvation on the cross. That's why the Hebrew writer said, why do you neglect so great a salvation? When the price has already been paid on the cross, when your sin debt has already been paid in full, how can you neglect so great a salvation? Only one person did it, and that was Jesus Christ. We're united as believers around one Lord. The culture has many gods, like the pagans, but there's only one God. So Paul says there's only one Lord. Jesus is the way. And when Jesus comes back to reign, all the false religions will cease to exist. They're having their heyday now. The season's here. But guess what? They're going to be done away with one day. Zechariah 14 and 9 says this. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. This is when the Lord comes back. This is the prophecy. Uh, Zechariah was speaking about the coming day of the Lord. And this was some 500 years before Christ was even born. He says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That means Christ is going to reign supreme over all of these other false gods, all of these other false religions. In other words, when he says, and his name one, it means that the Lord's name will remain unlike the names of the idols that were cut off. There's only one Lord with one name, and his name is Jesus. He is the only Lord. Not Buddha, not Confucius, not Muhammad, not the false god of Islam. His name is the Lord. And there's only one. I, the Lord, am one. That means he's singular. There's none like him. There's none beside him. There's only one Lord. There's only one ruler. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is there one Lord, there's one word, faith. One faith. This faith is the doctrinal truths of Scripture. Our faith is based on the truths of Scripture. They don't come from anywhere outside of us or outside of the Word of God. It refers to doctrine. not faith in faith. It, it, is, it is faith in the true doctrine that has been revealed in God's word. So we as believers are gathered around what? The word of God. Which provides us with the doctrines for life, the doctrines for godly living. There's only one faith. It's found here in the word of God or the words of God. One faith. Jude 3 tells us to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. We are to defend the faith. We are to defend the gospel. We are not to let people pervert the gospel of God, to make merchandise of the gospel of God. No, we are to defend the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to uphold the gospel because it is that important because it is the gospel which brings salvation. We are to refute or to rebuke False gospels. Because there's only one faith. 
Paul said in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, that there's only one gospel. He says that if, if, if we or even an angel from heaven comes to you and proclaims another gospel, let him be anathema. Anathema means a curse. Let a curse be put on him. If he does it, or even an angel from heaven comes and preaches another gospel than what they heard, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. That's how serious the gospel is. And that's how serious the faith is, which unites all believers. So when someone comes in with the false gospel, we're like, no, no, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what that scripture means. No, no, no. No, let's get the true gospel. Because false gospel divides. False gospel causes disunity in the church. You can't unite around what's false. That's why a lot of these churches that have false preachers, they got a revolving door of people. They do. I can truly say, you know, with God's, only because of God's grace, no one has left this church because of false doctrine. No one. And I thank God for that. No one can say all the people that have been to our church over these last 13 years cannot say that they left our church because we preach the gospel. And we thank the Lord for that. But the ones that do preach it, they have a revolving door of people. Because why? They're all about themselves. They're all about enriching themselves. They're not united around the one true faith of Jesus Christ. They united, you can't unite around something that's false. Something that's not true. Because people are going to begin to see it and say, wait a minute. That's what we're doing this in church. We're not supposed to be preaching about that or talking like that. But then when they do, they go to another church preaching the false doctrine. Maybe not as bad. Then another. And then another. And then another. False teaching does not unite. It divides. It corrupts. It poisons. It's like a cancer. It's like gangrene. It spreads. And it affects whatever it comes in contact with. But we're united around one faith, one doctrine, one unity in Christ. And then it says we have one what? Baptism. One baptism. We're baptized into Christ. Baptism symbolizes death to the old life and the beginning of a new life in Christ. That's what baptism Excuse me, represents. That's why every believer gets baptized. We're baptized into Christ. It is the outward sign of the inward reality. And we put on Christ through baptism. That's Galatians 3 and 27. We put on Christ through baptism. And then Paul ends these seven wise of unity with one God. One God. How many gods are there? One. There's only one. There will always be one. All the other gods are false gods. They're not true gods. They're all false. The God of Islam and the God of Christianity are not the same God. You must understand that. They're not the same God. The God of Judaism and the God of Christianity are not the same God. There's only one God and Father of all. And honestly, people, there are not many gods, as, as in the pagan culture, there's only one God. They may create many gods, 
but there's only one. So we have one God and Father of all. We talked about uh, last week about the fatherhood of God, that God is not everyone's father. Everyone is not a child of God. Only those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are his children. When we say one God, we must understand this. All human beings are created by God. We're all made in God's image. That's what makes us all the same. We're creating God's image and likeness. That's Genesis 1, 26, and 27. But in this context, Paul is focusing not on creation, but he's focusing on the second birth. He's focusing on our redemption. So all humans are not right with God by means of just being born. All humans are not children of God by just virtue of being born. Humans are children of God if they have faith in Jesus Christ. Personal repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ. That is how a person becomes a son of God and they can rightly call God Father. Everybody's created by God. Everybody's made in God's image. But everyone is not by birth a child of God. So when Paul is saying one God and Father of all, he's not talking about all people. He's talking about all believers because that's the context of this passage, right? He's talking about unity in the church. So he's the Father of all believers. He's the Father of all. He's one God. He is not fragmented. In spite of cultural differences, God is not fragmented. We talked about this a couple years ago when I preached on the attributes of God, that God is one. God, God doesn't have parts. He is simple in the fact that he's one entity. He doesn't, he doesn't have parts to him. All of his attributes are the same. His love is the same as his mercy, as the same as his judgment, as the same as his wisdom. All of God's attributes are the same. They're not different parts of God. God is not fragmented. He is not divided. God does not share his glory with anyone. God is a jealous God. If you look at Deuteronomy way back in the Old Testament, the fifth book of the Bible, he says this in Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 through 15. Listen to this. He says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Not jealous like a girl is jealous of her boyfriend. Okay? He's a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. When God says he's a jealous God, he's saying that he alone deserves your worship. And guess what? He does. Just in a simple sense, why does this one God deserve your worship? Who woke you up this morning? You didn't wake yourself up. Your alarm didn't wake you up. You know how many people's alarms go off and they don't wake up? <laughs> you hear on the news somebody went to do a welfare check on someone because they didn't show up at work and found them dead? And their alarm was probably going off? It was God who causes you to, to work, to be able to think, to be able to process things in your mind. It's the one God who made you. It wasn't you. It wasn't your strength. Because guess what? It can be taken away just like that. Our lives are transient. Man, man is so powerful. 
We think because we're young that we're going to live forever. You think that because we're older, we know everything? Her life can end in an instant. God is jealous. Why? Because he deserves all worship. He deserves all glory. If you're living in the misery of your sin because you haven't confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, who are you going to go to? What do most people go to? They go to drugs. They go to sex. They go to debauchery. They go to mutilating their bodies all kinds of ways. Because they can't deal with the misery of their sin. Instead of coming to Christ, instead of coming to the one true God, they do what? They create their own gods. Anything that you find your satisfaction in is your God. Anything you find your hope in is your God. You know, there was a time in my life, thank God it was over 30 years ago, why did you drink alcohol? And I used to get wasted. But we call it a blitz, like just done. I, I, I wasn't in Christ at that time. I used to get blind. You know how miserable I felt? A hangover. I didn't want to do it again. Don't let the curse fall on the fly. On base. You know, first and fifteenth in the military. Boy, don't let the curse be on Friday. Mm. I'd be half broke by, by Monday because I'd have went to the club on Friday night and got drunk. Go on Saturday night and got drunk. And go on Sunday night and got drunk. And then Monday, gotta go back to work. Gotta, you know, go to muster and everything. My head is banging. And miserable. That's the emptiness of the world. That's the emptiness of worshiping the false god of alcohol, the false god of, of drugs, the false god of sleeping around and shacking up, and 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 the false god of thinking that uh, an app on the phone is going to cure the, the the boredom that you have, and you're more bored because you download more apps. <laughs> Screen time goes up. Why? Because you're looking for a God in something electronic. In something that's man-made. Mindlessly scrolling. Looking for what? Your God. Or looking at your God. God, please satisfy me. I am so bored. I don't know what to do with I can't take one minute without you. How many children react viscerally when their parents say, give me your phone? Why? Because you're taking their God away. That's what it means to be jealous. You're jealous because your God is being taken away from you. Now, what about the God who made you? How jealous he is because you're looking to a, a phone to bring you the satisfaction that only he can give you. He is the cure for your soul. Not our devices, not social media, not streaming television shows endlessly and mindlessly until the night and until the next day, until the break of dawn. There's only one God that unites us as believers, and he is the God we ought to look to. The world's going to look at all the other gods, and they're going to continue to clamor over those false gods. But for us in the church, guess what? We gather around who? The one God and Father of all of us. And what is it about these gods? This God, he says here, he is over all. That means he is transcendent. He is sovereign. He is held on high. This is the ultimacy of the Father. He is above all. He transcends everything. He is not like his creation. 
He is not like us. He is not one with us. He is over all. He is supreme. He is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. He is the only sovereign. We're united around this God, people, because guess what? He is the only one. He is the only sovereign. None of these false gods are sovereign. We make them sovereign over our life, but they're weak. They can't do anything for us, but we still go to them foolishly. And you notice the more you go to them, the more empty you feel. The more empty you are. It's like a dog chasing his tail. See a dog chasing his tail? Does a dog ever catch his tail? No, it just it's just chasing. That's how it is to worship false gods. You're going to keep doing it. They're going to keep not satisfying you. And yet you're going to still keep doing it. Why? Because this God is not overall. Only the one true God is. He is overall. And this God is in all. He is present in all believers. He is present in all of us. God's presence is always with the believer through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He is in us. God said he would never leave us nor forsake us. Why? Because he dwells in us. We can be assured as believers that God will never leave us. He will never abandon us. He will never leave us to ourselves. Why? Because he is in us. And not only is he in us, but he is through us. He works through us. He lives within his people. He is actively present and pervasive in every part of us and every part of his creation. God is transcendent. He is imminent. He is over all. This is the God that we are united around as believers, the one true God. So I end by saying this. As believers, we must find our unity in the truths of God as he has been revealed in Scripture. We must always look to that unity that we have. We should be unified in all of our local churches by these truths, by the work of the Spirit in all of us. And it does take effort, as what Paul said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. It requires all of us to remind each other of who we're united around. Remember, there's one God, one body. There's one spirit that unites us. There's one hope that we have. There's one Lord that we worship. There's one faith that we defend. There's one baptism that makes us part of the body of Christ. And there's one God who is God the Father. And that is how we are united as believers. Amen. 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 Let us pray. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are one. It is, it is so simple. It is so simple that you are one. Lord, help us as a church to continue to be united around these truths. To know that it is these truths that unite us as a, a local church and also the universal church. Lord, we thank you that you made it so simple for us, although we can complicate it with our sinful ways. Lord, help us here at the Living Church continue to be united together under these truths. Lord, help us and be with us to be united together. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Before we do our doxology, I have a presentation to make to someone. Uh, Haley, come up here. Yes. Haley. Oh. Either that or I can keep it. I told Haley and Gerald that uh, when they get their permits, 
going to get $20. And so Haley beat her older sister to get her permit. So I'm not, I'm not going to shame Gerald, but Gerald should not let her younger sister beat out like that. And she did. So uh, I told Haley and Gerald I'm going to give you $20. Trying to motivate them to do things like that. So uh, this is $20 for you. Uh, I, I came through on my promise. Give you twenty dollars to get your permit. So good job on that. Now I want to embarrass somebody calling up here. You go back to your seat. So I so I'll give you twenty dollars. So you got her twenty dollars for uh, getting her permit. So now whose turn is it? Gerald's turn. Gerald's turn to get her license now. So Gerald, I mean her permit. Actually, her license is seventeen years old. And I told them when they get their license, they'll get another $20. So, 